Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ampere's latest podcast. My name is Guy Bisson, one of the founders of Ampere Analysis. This is a particularly special one because we're recording live from our Los Angeles office. Joining me this morning are Kristen Tamerson and Ben French, both of whom are analysts in our LA office. We are going to be talking a lot today about content. Content is a super hot topic. There's been a massive content boom over recent years, but with changes in the market, reflecting maturity of streaming platforms, economic downturn, and a cost of living crisis, the outlook for content has changed significantly in just the last three to four months. We're going to be drawing on a couple of pieces of analysis that have been done by Ben and by Kristen, looking at the value of content to streamers, looking at the strategy in particular of HBO Max, which of course is one of the streaming platforms that has been removing content from its platform, and also touching on the potential future of Hulu and its relationship with Disney. You are listening to the AMP Podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com. Let me start with you, Kristen. You've been looking at the removal of original content from HBO Max, and that's something that began when Warner Brothers Discovery combined and started a range of cost-cutting measures. What did your analysis show in particular about the type of content that was getting removed? Yeah, if we look on a title level, most of the HBO Max originals that were removed were neither popular nor critically acclaimed. And a huge proportion of the cuts that were actually made were from the children and family and reality genres specifically. So about 24% and 21%. So almost half of the cuts were in these two genres. These two genres were placed in the bottom half of all enjoyed genres of HBO Max subscribers in the US. And we also know that Removed originals saw a steeper decline between their peak popularity, which we typically see around their premiere period, and their more recent popularity post-Warner Brothers Discovery merger. So the removed titles saw about a 50% decline from their peak popularity, while the originals that are still on platform today only saw about a 35% decline. So some of these titles, while they may have had a decent level of engagement when they first premiered on HBO Max. Certainly in the months prior to their removal, a lot of the titles were probably seeing not enough engagement for them to be valuable to the platform. We also know that these removed originals did not make up a huge proportion of HBO Max's overall US catalog, but the removal of them was still alarming and unusual at that time because HBO Max and Discovery Plus were the only two major US SVOD platforms that saw net losses in their original numbers last year. So these original titles, they were commissioned specifically for the platforms and, you know, were thus previously expected to stay indefinitely. But that is clearly not the case anymore. 
It's really interesting because we know that streamers use data and they look at their performance, they look at completion rates, they look at popularity. But this was the first that really impacted original content. But it does sound like HBO uh, uh, was was using this opportunity, this opportunity to cut costs, to have a bit of a spring clean, which is quite interesting. And I wonder if other streamers will follow suit. But Ben, you also looked at HBO in your analysis and your report and your research was specifically looking at the value of content to streamers. And that was benchmarked against the market price, namely the price that they're able to charge in the US market month to month for a subscription. Tell us about that. Sure. HBO Max is an interesting one because HBO Max competes with Netflix on price but its library is considerably smaller than Netflix. And so the aggregate popularity across the platform is less than Netflix, which basically tells us that HBO Max uh, falls slightly behind its true pricing with a market value around $12.50 compared to its true price of $15. Now, that being said, if we combine Discovery Plus and HBO Max into a single platform, that would give us a market value about on par with the price of $15 because Discovery Plus uh, is a relatively large library and combining them will increase the popularity on the platform. One of the more interesting findings about HBO Max is that it gets so much value from such a small subset of its titles, HBO Originals, uh, make up a very small proportion of the titles in the library, but make up around 40% of the platform's value which highlights the value of tentpole titles, specifically in the past Game of Thrones, which maintains popularity over time, showing a a strong return on investment that carries through past the release period and to people who will go back and rewatch the content. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess those originals, now that they've had this clean out that Kristen was talking about, each title, therefore, will be even more impactful to the value of that platform. It's it's quite an interesting piece of analysis. One of the other things that we've been seeing in the market, and again, it relates to the stage that we find ourselves at in terms of market maturity, is the fact that streamers and large content owners who hitherto had held back their content for exclusive use on their own streaming services are beginning to look at licensing again. So we've heard noises from Disney and a couple of others, that they will revisit the opportunities around licensing some of that content to third parties. Again, coming to you, Ben, because your your research did look at the value specifically of licensed content from third parties to those streamers. What did you find there? Yeah, so the first thing that I want to mention is not exactly a surprise, but the the newer, the tech-led studios, Prime Video and Netflix, they get the vast majority of their value from licensed titles still. Amazon Prime gets close to 75% of its value from its licensed content, and Netflix gets closer to 90%, even despite the more recent investments in their own studio operations. Another interesting thing is that these tech-led studios, they're independently produced licensed titles actually compete in value with the major studios. While for the studio-led, the traditional studio-led services, major studios are 
multiples up to 5x, five times the value of independently licensed titles. And for Prime Video and Netflix, they get between 20 and 35% of their value from their licensed major studios and from independently produced titles. But the second thing is that Sony, being the only major studio without its own streaming service, is the most valuable across the board. So if you add up the value it contributes to HBO Max, Disney, Netflix, Paramount Plus, and Prime, it has the highest sum of value. But some studios have favorites. For example, with Netflix, Warner Brothers Discovery is the most valuable licensor to Netflix, followed by Sony. And for Prime, Paramount Global is the most popular. So it's interesting if studios do return to licensing some of their best original content, it sounds like it's going to be an advantage for Netflix and others who will now get access to that content, which is a a really interesting development. Of course, for the studios, it's it's another revenue stream that they can exploit. And we are at a stage in the market where they are looking more at customer retention than customer acquisition. And that means that the approach they take to content is becoming very, very different. In particular, some of those big tentpole movies and series have a use, of course, but then the opportunity to license them to third parties opens up because they can use other content on the platform for that retention part of their strategy. Another big change we've seen, of course, in the recent months is the introduction of advertising on Netflix, of course, but many of the big studio platforms as well. And one of the hottest topics in advertising at the moment is fast channels, so-called free ad-supported streaming television channels. Some of that content, Kristen, that was getting pulled off HBO Max, there were reports that it would be used to launch fast channels. What what do we know about that? So previously, it was unclear if we would ever see these removed originals ever again. But from external sources, we have now heard that Warner Brothers Discovery have partnered with Roku and Tubi to create Warner Brothers branded fast channels. Some of the HBO Max original shows that are already slated for a fast channel debut include the popular unscripted shows like F-Boy Island and Legendary. And while not being an HBO Max original itself, the popular HBO show Westworld is also set to make its fast channel debut. So the removal of these HBO Max originals have now opened them up to the market again for third-party licensing, and we may see that become more common, as you said. Yeah, it's certainly a super hot topic. And as you mentioned, many of those fast channels are single brand, single show channels and franchise channels, but there's also a good mix of more general fast entertainment channels that are launching on these platforms like Tubi and Pluto. But coming to on-platform advertising, so the advertising that is between programming on Netflix and other services. Ben, you looked at, or one of the reports you've done looks at the value potentially of that advertising and the proportion of revenue they might be making from advertising relative to their subscription tier. What were your findings? Yeah, so looking at Netflix and Disney+, Plus on a basic level, their ad strategies seem to be quite similar. Their ad loads are about the same, four to five minutes. They 
launched around the same time within a few weeks of each other. But Netflix is claiming a slightly higher cost for their ads, their CPMs, and they're partnering with Microsoft to do that in the ad tech space. But Disney Plus probably will not be far behind and they will compete quite strongly with each other. But the strategies themselves fundamentally do differ. For Netflix, it seems to be a user acquisition strategy by offering a cheaper option to attract those customers who are on the lower end of willingness to pay for the service. For Disney, it's more of a monetization strategy by increasing their price of their ad free tier and keeping their ad tier at their original cost. They're hoping to incentivize users to join the ad tier where they can better monetize and advertise to their customers. The release strategies are also different. For Netflix, Netflix launched in all of its biggest markets except for India, which is an edge case with their mobile plan. But Disney Plus launched in the U.S. only. And Netflix being brand new to the ad game, you can expect some challenges in terms of users taking the ad tier. But for Disney, they've been in the ad game for quite a long time with Hulu. And by increasing the premium price at the same time as the launch of their ad-supported tier, they will probably attract more users to the ad tier. And our SVOD economics data is showing some preliminary evidence of that with uptake rates about twice that of Netflix. Yeah, it's interesting, of course, customer acquisition strategy, absolutely, but also a churn down protection strategy, I think, in the case of Netflix. Now, another platform that knows all about advertising, and you referenced it there, Ben, is is Hulu. They've long had advertising as one of the options on their lower tiers. And indeed, our data shows that they make more from an ad-supported customer than from a premium customer. Kristen, you were you were looking at the future of Disney Plus, particularly in reference to the future of Hulu and the potential that Comcast will sell the remaining stake that it holds in that platform to Disney, giving Disney finally full shareholder control. But there's also been talk in the market that Hulu might be for sale. What what do we know about what's happening with Hulu? So as the 2024 deadline approaches for Disney to buy out Comcast's remaining 33% stake in Hulu, one possible outcome is platform consolidation, wherein Disney Plus would essentially ingest all of Hulu's content, or at least most. So a merger between these two platforms would be logical in a sense that Disney has continued to invest in Hulu and its ownership share of Hulu content has tripled since 2016. So back in 2016, Disney owned distribution rights to about 6% of Hulu's catalog, but fast forward to 2022, Disney owns about 20% of distribution rights to Hulu's catalog. That being said, Hulu is still mostly comprised of licensed titles from external companies that are not Disney. Another perk of merging Hulu and Disney would be bringing in more adult-targeted content to Disney+, Plus. so this kind of balances out its catalog a bit more, which skews heavily towards kids' content. Disney did try this out sometime last year by introducing some more adult-rated content, but certainly bringing in Hulu's catalog would level out the skew towards that kid content. And Of course, on the flip side of things, the other option would be to keep these platforms separate, as the bundling deal has been pretty lucrative for 
Disney. So it keeps their Hulu only subscribers happy. It keeps their Disney Plus only subscribers happy, but it offers a cheaper price with the Disney bundle for those who want both platforms. Yeah, it's interesting because originally, of course, Hulu was earmarked for international rollout, but those plans were shelved when the economy went sideways. And they have rolled out the star brand in a number of markets as their adult-focused content brand. Hulu would certainly bring that, or indeed does bring that, in the case of the US market. So I do wonder if selling it which has been mentioned in some press reports, would be the wisest decision for the US market. So, Kristen, you also looked at the potential of other major studios pulling their content off Hulu. And, of course, we saw that when Disney Plus and other direct-to-consumer brands launched, some of their studio content was pulled off Netflix and others. Now there's the potential, then, that content will be pulled from Hulu once Disney takes full control. What do we know about that? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, most of Hulu content comes from licensed external sources. In fact, a little over 10% of Hulu's catalog is owned by studios with platforms of their own. And then if we look deeper into Hulu's 100 most popular titles, about 35% of them actually belong to these competitor studios. So the threat of title reclamation then becomes losing possible engaging popular content that subscribers really value. So things that can keep subscribers on platform, Hulu could lose that. And if Hulu were to lose a huge proportion of this content, they'd obviously run the risk of losing their subscribers. So this thus lends support to the argument that maybe a combined Hulu Disney Plus platform would be a stronger together possibly deterring churn rates from possible title reclamation from other studios. But also, if we look at the top 100 most popular titles in the U.S. last year, on average, the combination of Disney and Hulu Plus together took up almost 30% of these popular titles. And hypothetically, this new platform of theirs would be the one with the most popular hits, topping even Netflix, Amazon, and other competitors. It's interesting that we got conflicting strategies almost. We talked at the beginning of the podcast about a return to licensing, and now we're talking about the potential to remove content. And that is the power of content. We, we certainly know from our popularity data how important Friends was on Netflix. And of course, Warner pulled that back when they launched HBO Max. So I think we're in really interesting times from the theatrical window forward. We're almost coming full circle now that these platforms are mature and revisiting the business models that were in place before they all launched and before there was a massive market shakeup. And one of the other trends that we've been picking up on in relation to content is intellectual property and franchisable intellectual property in particular. It's increasingly important to have repeatable performance in the streaming content business, and the safety of a known franchise is something that is very, very attractive to producers and to the studios and the streaming platforms themselves. And Ben, you you looked again in your valuation report specifically at franchise content. What were the findings? Yeah, for Disney Plus, franchises are 
a really key part of their strategy. They're very important to the value of the platform. And I'm not even talking about the theatrical value of these franchise releases, but the the follow-on value on their streaming service itself. And for Disney Plus, I looked at five franchises, Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars, Pirates of the Caribbean, and National Geographic. And the franchises, the five franchises make up about 34, 35% of the platform value, despite making up about 5 to 10% of the titles on platform. And for Disney Plus, I don't think anyone would be very surprised to know that Marvel is the most valuable franchise for Disney right now, given its ongoing investment in high-budget films. But when you look at the breakdown and look at their franchises on a title-by-title basis, Marvel is actually the least valuable by a small margin per title to the streaming service, except for National Geographic, which is really important from a branding perspective, but the titles themselves aren't that popular. Pirates of the Caribbean is small but mighty, and it's the most valuable per title because it's got ongoing popularity on the platform, despite not really having a recent release. So I think from a consumer perspective, there was also a bit of a positive in your report, Ben. It's not often that we think of things we have to pay for as being underpriced. But one of the things that you found in your report was that some of the US streamers, relative to the content value they give to their customers, are actually underpriced. One of those was Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, Paramount Plus is an interesting one. Being a slightly later entrant, Paramount Plus is priced relatively cheap to compete better on price with the major streaming studios. That being said, Paramount Plus has some theoretical room to grow in terms of a possible price increase. Most users are only ad-supported tier, and the market value is close to $750 over the $499 price point of the ad tier. Paramount Plus competes with Disney Plus on popularity with major long-running titles or newer, very popular titles like Yellowstone and Survivor. They also have a lot of very high-quality kids' content. And surprisingly, Paramount Plus stands out with its licensed classics, which hold lasting value. And I'm thinking of, for example, Star Trek. So good news for fans of the Cardassians, I guess. So that's it. We're going to wrap up here from our LA office. So we've talked about quite a few things and very much focused on content. We've talked about how market maturity has changed the dynamics of the streaming market, but not just streaming. It's led to a revisitation of theatrical releasing and indeed of licensing content to third parties. We've talked about what's been happening at HBO Max following the Warner Brothers Discovery combination the removal of underperforming titles, the potential for Disney to take full control of Hulu, maybe even sell Hulu, but it looks like that might not be the best idea. And we've talked about franchises and intellectual property and how important that is becoming to content value in the wider market. And finally, ending on that positive note, Some of those US platforms are indeed a very good bargain indeed. So I suggest you go out and subscribe to them right away. Thank you very much for joining us today. And we look forward to the next podcast from Los Angeles.